This is Lorraine Gordon from the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance based out of Southern Cross University. Today we welcome Cole Sice, a mixed farmer from the Golgong area of New South Wales. Cole has come from a traditional cropping and grazing family and experienced an ecological crash back in the 1970s, which actually set them up for being quite vulnerable around the bushfires that came afterwards. When these bushfires did arrive, they completely changed Cole's life. He lost everything, including stock, in the fires. So Cole had to rebuild everything, and he started to think about the future survival of himself, his family and his farm. So his focus quickly changed to low-input agriculture, and what could he do differently to remain resilient into the future? In this episode, we will look at the innovative land management technique of multi-species pasture cropping. Cole is a true Australian character, and this is a real story about a farming family that faced adversity and how they survived it, how they came out of the ashes with new innovative methods for our future farming generations. Welcome to Ground Cover with your host, Kerry Cochran, proudly brought to you by the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance and Southern Cross University. This is a show for farmers by farmers, a uniquely Australian podcast series exploring real-life stories of land managers who have undertaken the transition from conventional farming to regenerative agriculture. Each week, we'll share a unique and honest conversation about the challenges and opportunities of regenerative agriculture so you can make informed decisions about how to best manage your land. In his book, The Call of the Reed Warbler, Charlie Massey described our next regenerative farmer guest as follows. Colsice appears to be your archetypal, laid-back, laconic Australian bushy. His speech is full of colloquialisms. His open sun-drenched face is frequently creased by a smile that betrays his dry sense of humour. Until 30 years ago, this hitherto apparently typical farmer was a traditional cropper and grazer. Though in tough country, Colin's farm nevertheless lay in an attractive landscape. We'll come to that landscape in a moment. But Col, that toughness, as Charlie Massey portrays, ultimately shone through in circumstances which left you virtually penniless, and no doubt it tested your dry sense of humour. I'm talking about the fire. Yeah, it sounds like Charlie probably knows me too well, I think. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, the... um, that bushfire, it changed my whole life. And even though I didn't think it was much fun at the time, I wouldn't change that fire for anything now because that did change my whole life. And it changed the way that I did things and set in motion uh, the development of a different way of, of growing crops that's now being adopted all around the planet. Can you tell me a bit more about what you were doing back when the fire emerged and what, why did the fire emerge? Backtracking a bit further, I grew up in high input agriculture, like fertiliser use and that type of thing. I was in that era because my father was very innovative and adopted uh, things very early. And he was first to adopt some of the green revolution methods and high rates of fertiliser. Fortunately, not a lot of pesticides in those times, but um, and it worked very well for him during that era. But it started to crash, 
ecologically, even though we didn't know it was an ecological crash in the 1970s, but it also set us up to get burnt out very severely in 1979. In, in what way? What happened? Was there just a, a, a big wind that day and, it, and you had a lot of grass on your property and, all, and it came through and, and, and took a lot of things with it? Yes, all of that. Um, it was a hu- huge wind, very hot, over 40 degrees, somewhere 43 or 4 degrees. But what actually happened was that the type of, of pastures that my father had sown through those, that time were, were all winter-growing species, many annuals, mostly annual species, that went into summer dormancy. So we had not only no, no green food in the summer, it, it was just brown, brown and dry and just waiting to be burnt. And I might add now that that's the reason, well, a big part of the reason Victoria gets burnt out every year because the native grassland has been removed and replaced by just cool season introduced plants that have no green in them in, in the summer. So the fire came through and it sort of wiped out how many sheep and uh, what facilities did you lose? We lost about 3,000 sheep in that fire, which was most of, most of our sheep, and we lost pretty well everything, a house, shearing shed, pretty well all the sheds except for an old machinery shed, almost all of the fencing, uh, it's about 50 k's, 50 kilometres of fencing. So just about everything was wiped out. We had about a thousand ewes survived, and those poor old ewes, they they got burnt. Pretty well, all of them got burnt to some degree, and um, burnt up the insides of the legs. And the fire was that severe that that many of them had no ears at all. They burnt the ears off them, but the ones that still had, had ears, <laughs> it melted the ear tags into their ears. So it, it was amazing. But how that, those old ewes survived, I don't know, but, but they did. Those used were used to rebuild our, our, our merino flock here, and uh, we didn't buy sheep in. We just bred them up from, from those surviving ewes. Now, that was the event that led to the change. Can we talk about how you moved into thinking about the change? Well, it was simpler than you think because, because after a fire like that, uh, you know, we were going reasonably well before the fire, but from one day to the next day, we were just stone broke. We had nothing, not only, only broke, we, we had, had nothing on, on the property and we had to rebuild everything. Well, I was burnt in it as well. And while I was in hospital, I had hair like a burnt sock <laughs> and, and burns everywhere all over me. I had time to think about how I was going to survive and, and what I was going to do to get out of this, this mess. I started to think about ways, ways it could be done. And the only thing that came up to me was I had to develop a very low input method of agriculture, but it had to be greater than low input. It actually had to be no input because we didn't have any money anyway. So I set out trying to achieve that. And remember in those days, this is in early 1980s, no one was talking about uh, low input agriculture. It was still all very much high production agriculture. Uh, up to that point, of course, I think you were you used to use uh, large amounts of superphosphate. Would that be right? That's right. I was only fairly young in that era, my father's era, and he was putting on 125 kilograms per hectare or old hundredweight to the acre all over the whole property every year and that that was from at least 1950 or even before that to 1979. So what what you what you did really was uh, you removed the superphosphate because that's an input that you couldn't afford and you also had to do something about the amount of cultivations you were doing on the property because you were still a cropper weren't you really? Yes well mixed farmers always work. I started to grow crops because 
we didn't have enough sheep numbers. This was just a survival thing again. I started to grow, grow crops and I started to grow them the way my father did them. And I also did in that era was ploughing and working country, you know, three or four or five times. And that went okay for a while. And then the crops started, to, the things started to go wrong with them with crop diseases, and many of those things uh, going wrong with them. And, and the crops weren't performing that well after a time. So I'd heard about those days direct drilling, now it's called zero tillage. And so I adopted that. It worked okay for a while too. And then similar things started to happen. Yields started to decline and we're getting crop disease and everything in them as well. So I got the best agronomy advice I could get at the time. And the advice was to double the amount of fertiliser. And, and that same advice was given on our pastures as well. Double the fertiliser, increase the fertiliser, all this sort of, well, you know, you're not going to survive unless you put fertiliser on pastures. And the only way we, we were going to grow crops was to, to increase the fertiliser. The problem with that was that the fertiliser, compound fertiliser we're using, nitrogen and phosphorus, was the nitrogen levels in that was that high. It was toxic to wheat plants. So <laughs> then we had to double shoot it or put the fertiliser in a different place to the seed. When I started to think about this, it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense economically, but it didn't make sense if the amount of fertiliser we're putting on was killing, killing the wheat plant. So I, I didn't accept any of that advice. And I, I started searching for another way of doing it. And what happened then? Well, a good friend of mine, Daryl Clough, and I, we used to have a few beers together <laughs> fairly often. And over those beers, we, uh, <laughs> we thought of this lunatic idea that came out of a, a discussion one evening about we would start a challenge of why we were using high rates of, of pesticide, especially Roundup, to kill the native grasses that were dormant in the winter anyway. And so they weren't actually affecting the crop, or we reasoned that they probably weren't affecting the crop in the, in the early 1990s. So we thought that we'd wait till that, those grasses went dormant for, their, for the winter and then use really low rate of Roundup and then sow the crop into, into that direct driller. Mm -hmm. And it worked really well, first, first time. And then over the years, I, I fine-tuned all, all that. Then I realised that Roundup wasn't a, an ideal herbicide. So changed from that to more selective herbicides over, over time uh, and then fine-tuned it over, over a long period of time up, up until now. So did you, are you still using those uh, weedicides, pesticides? No, I, I haven't used Roundup for, um, oh dear, uh, since about 1998 or, or less than that. Some herbicides, I use more selective desiccant herbicides um, and more selective, but now I often sow crops and always try to sow crops without a herbicide at all. The fertiliser inputs have decreased by about 70% and, and I'm starting to use more biological fertilisers as well. So you seem to have a, a name, though, for pasture cropping, and uh, chemicals, of course, don't go well with pasture cropping. Uh, no. Um, I haven't used pesticide or fungicide uh, here, well, since for, uh, for probably 30 years. And like I said, Roundup's probably been a similar time. We don't need those. We don't need to be killing insects, and we don't need to be putting fungicides on to killing fungi that's damaging crops, because if we get it all functioning well at our farm and soil ecosystem functioning well, we don't need to apply those things. So you would see yourself today as, what, a, a multi-species pasture cropping farmer? Okay. The multi-species side of pasture cropping came later. I developed that in about 2010, and I started planting multi-species crops. 
instead of oats or wheat on its own, I started planting a mix of species, up to 10 species in a mix. And I was looking at that stage to drive the soil health even further than it has. And even though we'd got great gains in soil health and soil carbon and restoring the soil ecosystem, I just wanted to, to move it further and faster. So I started planting it in multi-species crops, which turns out to be very, very good stock feed. And also, because of the species diversity, restores the nutrient cycling, increases nutrients. Also, we've got a, uh, we put flowering plants in there to control crop damaging, plant damaging uh, insects, control crop diseases, all that, all that can, be, can be managed by plants. So what you've really done is remove the fallow from your system and done what uh, the fallow has no role in, that is you introduce uh, pasture species into the, into the soil. And so what you have then is, I guess you've set up in a way, a competition between the cereal that you sow and the, and the pasture species that you've sown as well. Uh, not really, no. No, uh, the part, those plants that I, I mentioned, those multi-species ones, aren't really pasture species. They're crops and usually used for forage crops. The pasture, the grass that we're planting into, are dormant at that time. So we're planting into a dormant perennial grassland. This process actually restores that grassland and encourages the increase of, of more perennial grasses and more perennial grass diversity. So it's not really competing at all. And if you think about it, there's been very few changes done in the way crops have grown for 10,000 years in that we've killed grasslands and destroyed soil for 10,000 years to, to grow a crop. And we still do it now with um, zero tilling. We're still using herbicides and pesticides and everything to kill grasslands or, and, and pastures. We don't mm. need to do that. Tell me about your soil then, because what you're doing is adding a lot more pasture and roots and uh, vegetative material to the profile. So I assume that your carbon levels are increasing enormously. Yeah, the carbon levels have increased by about 200% uh, in that period. And, and we've done quite a bit of soil carbon testing to half a metre here. Yes, they've, they've increased enormously. And associated with that is extra water holding capacity. And interestingly, all of the soil nutrients... I'm talking about all of them, not just NPK, but trace elements and everything have increased by an average of 172%, and that's without putting fertilisers on. What do you put that down to? It looks as though when we get this functioning well, it's all about restoring the soil ecosystem and, and the farm ecosystem. No one ever puts agriculture and ecosystems in the same sentence, but we should. So for, as we restore the soil ecosystem and restore soil, soil microbial diversity, add plants in there and it's plants that feed soil microbes, we start to cycle nutrients and it looks as though we can actually get nutrients from out of the parent material or th that's in our soil. After all, that's where nutrients or soil, soil nutrients or minerals have come from in the first place. That's where we think it's coming from. And certainly that's backed up by many soil scientists now, although there was certainly some challenges uh, when I first presented this stuff. So when you look at your soil today, can you absolutely feel the difference, see the difference, smell the difference? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. All of that. Certainly see the difference. It's almost black. It's very dark brown. I always thought this soil was fawn-coloured, <laughs> and it used to be. Now it's black. And not only that, it's black now to at least a foot. So in other words, we've built topsoil to at least a foot or 30 centimetres. It certainly smells, but it should smell like almost a mushroom compost soil does. We can 
tell a lot from it with our noses on, on what soil is like. There must be a lot of uh, interest in your your community about what you've done because, you know, your, your indicators there uh, speak volumes for the methodology that you're using. There's a lot of interest around the world in what I've done and there's probably an estimated 3,000, 4,000 farmers around the world adopting this and increasing all the time on many hundreds of, I don't know how many acres, I'd be hundreds of thousands of acres, not more. But interestingly, this is often repeated by the people too, the closer you get to the change of anything new or innovative, the least adoption there is. I get people from all over the world coming to my farm, but many local people don't realise what I do. Mm-hmm. It's often the case. You haven't mentioned yeah. holistic grazing management, but you have adopted that, haven't you? Yes, holistic grazing management is a vital part of this and it's overlaid over everything. It's certainly overlaid over the pasture cropping and it's a very important thing to remember. All of this stuff works better if we overlay it with really good grazing management that gives plants time to recover before they're regrazed. And also we can stack other enterprises in this as well. We don't need to just have sheep and wheat, for example. Would you say that back in your father's day, you had more of a monoculture, but today it's greater than that. It's, it's greater diversity happening. Is that the secret? Absolutely. Species diversity and plants generally is, is what drives all of this. Yeah, in my father's era, it was mainly, he'd like, we'd lost the grassland from 1930 to about 1950 by ploughing and, and planting crops. And in my father's era, it was mainly ryegrass, annual ryegrass and annual clover, very few perennials in it. And I did some monitoring in the early 1990s, measuring plants, and we had um, nine species of perennial grassland species, and there were 60% weeds on, on the property. Now, there's 5% weeds and 90%, well, no, sorry, there's 80% perennial species. Now, there's over, over 60 native grassland species on the property. An extraordinary movement of diversity. When you think back on all that happened, the fire, the aftermath of it, the desperation, and then the creativity that emerged and the answers that followed uh, must make you pretty satisfied. Yes, it's very satisfying when you see people adopting and changing, but I don't know whether it doesn't matter too much what we change to as long as it regenerates our farms and our landscape and our planet. Uh, and, and many people argue about that their way is the only way to, to fix things. But there, in reality, there's a lot of good ways to fix things. And really, if we integrate as many of these good regenerative type practices on our farms, the greater gains we'll get. And that's, that is the way to do it. From a change point of view, though, you were receiving advice to do one thing and you said, no, I'm not going to go that way. But what you did was discover a different way by challenging a few assumptions. That's exactly right. Yes, it did not make sense to me, so the advice that I was given. And we have to remember, the advice that I was being given in the 1990s and even in the 1980s was the same type of advice that we're getting now. So what's the message here, I think, for other farmers that want to become more regenerative? What, what's holding them back, do you think? The industrial model that we've been following now since well, the Green Revolution, 1950, it's just flawed. It simply is flawed. Worked for a while. It worked well for a while. It worked well for my father because it made him more profitable. But ecologically, it crashed on him and it's crashing on people now. That's a major part of the problem. And it's becoming too expensive 
to continue to adopt those industrial practices. It, it failed a long time ago and it's still failing now. The theme that comes through in this discussion with you today and also with other podcasts I've done on regenerative farming is the role of ecology in farming today, which wasn't prevalent back in the days of your father. So that seems to be the one common theme. That's correct. Yes, we need more ecologists in agriculture because they understand the whole picture. We, in other words, we need, we, we've already got a blueprint to model agriculture off, and that's Mother Nature. That's what ecology is, is about, really, restoring farm ecosystems and soil ecosystems. And I might add now, the other thing that's really important to change and adopt is agriculture is supposed to be about nurturing, nurturing things. Now, one of the problems that we've had is that agriculture, the industrial model, has been male-dominated now for 70 or 80 years or more. Well, agriculture's been male-dominated for 100 years. What we need is more women in agriculture because women are nurturers. Agriculture is supposed to be about nurturing our, our land and our farms and our planet. It, we will solve many of our problems if more women were involved in all forms of agriculture. What about the universities? Because they seem to be teaching about productivity or about the industrial approach to farming. Do you think that they're pretty slow on the uptake of this idea? Very slow on the uptake. I was invited last November to, to address ag science students and their lecturers at Sydney University. And that was an interesting challenge. Yes, and I, I was talking about the type of things I'm talking to, about today and mostly they'd never heard of it. But there is a change happening. I had a, a group of ag science students and, and vet science, or well, they just graduated from Texas University from the US here uh, a few months ago, and they were the same. They, they hadn't heard of any of this either, but were very, very interested in it. And, and the Sydney Uni students were as well. Cole, what lies ahead for you? What innovations can you see um, coming up? Depends on how much beer I drink. <laughs> the, um, no, <laughs> no um, I think we just need, we need to certainly keep advancing this. We, ne we need to look at all types of, of methods and ways. And also, one of the main problems that we've got at the moment, we know how to address uh, insect attack. We know how to address fungal diseases. Weeds are, are in cropping programs are, are one of our bigger problems and organic, organic zero till is, very, is quite difficult, not impossible, but quite difficult. Just though, some of those things would be, would be good and I've been working on this for quite a few years. So just like to nail that one if I can. Well, when you look at research into this area, it seems to be uh, not well catered for at all. The, most of the universities or most of the research centres seem to be uh, focusing on approaches which are not seen that they're not organic, if you like, or not ecological. They're more related yep. to industrial agriculture. Yep, and it'll be farmers that develop this out, out of necessity. Well, I, I started off by talking about you and uh, the chapters in Charlie Massey's book, The Call of the Reed Warbler. It's a fascinating read. There are many case studies in there, including yours. I'm wondering what reaction you've had from the wider public to what they've read about your approach. It's all been quite positive. No one's throwing rocks at me yet. The, no, it's all been quite positive. What I'm getting at here is this big change happening around the planet. I'm quite enthusiastic about the change, although it's going to be a hard push because there, there is a pushback from the industrial side of the farming side world as well. 
to me, uh, this has been a fascinating story, not just of uh, humour and resilience, but also courage, I think. So um, thanks for making the time today for today's broadcast on regenerative farming. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Ground Cover. Hit subscribe now so you never miss an episode. And for further resources on this topic, head to scu.edu.au forward slash RAA. This podcast has been produced by the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance on behalf of Southern Cross University, a collaboration designed to build a more resilient agriculture industry in Australia. 